Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm a senior editor at the Mises Institute. And with me today is though Bishop, my associate editor, and we're actually physically in the same room this time because we're both here in Auburn, Alabama, at our campus for the Austrian Economics Research Conference. And so we'll be attending uh, some of those talks this week. I'll be giving a presentation on my new book, Breaking Away, which you should buy a copy of if you have not yet. Just go to the Mises store and you can get a copy. Promo code ROTHPOD, R-O-T-H-P-O-D. <laughs> And I thank you, that though, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the book. Um, and if you come here, come to one of our events, I'll sign it for you. We know how valuable a McMakin signature can be on newly released books. So come on by. And, uh, of course, always visit Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G for more content like uh, what we have here on Radio Rothbard. And this week, we're going to discuss uh, banks and banking bailouts and bank panics and all that sort of stuff, because I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, dear listener, but uh, we seem to be in the early stages of the next financial crisis. And what we had going on last week was last Friday morning, which is actually kind of unusual. They usually close down the banks in the afternoon on Friday, but Friday morning... Uh, regulators went in and closed down Silicon Valley Bank, and then there was talk about First Republic failing, but it hasn't yet. They're talking about selling that one. And then there was Signature Bank that failed, uh, I believe, on Sunday. And so what were these regulators doing over the weekend? Well, they had all of their meetings, and how? what are we going to do? We're going to have to bail it out. Otherwise, there's going to be a bunch of bank runs. There's going to be a bank panic. Um and so they created a, a new fund or what they call a facility uh, in, uh, in basically a joint venture between the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. So we're just going to we're going to shovel all sorts of money to these banks. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. So it looks like maybe the era of quantitative easing is over. Uh, we will find out next week when the Fed has their FOMC meeting and, and decides what they're going to do with interest rates. Um, so that's a little bit up in the air. But right now, the way markets are responding is that, OK, we the economy looks broken enough now due to these uh, bank issues that the Fed's going to at least back off its proposed 50 basis point increase. Maybe 25, but probably less. Heck, maybe they'll even start cutting interest rates. Who knows what will happen now between next week uh, and between now and next week? Who can say? But definitely the uh, the quantitative tightening that we've seen over the past year is very much in peril. And so whatever success has been made in terms of price inflation uh, in reining in the money supply, bringing down prices, that era could be at an end. We don't know yet, but it's certainly uh, in greater danger of ending now. And if you follow us here at Raider Rothbard, you know that we're in favor of doing something to really get rid of some of this huge monetary overhang that's happened over the last couple of years and the $6 trillion that's essentially been printed since 2020. So there's lots of stuff going on. And then there's even a Bitcoin element to that. this, which though we'll talk about a little bit. Um, and so let's just get right into it, though. I, I, what, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that 
there's been enough of a panic here that uh, the that the bankers are going to get their way and they're going to back off and we're going to start seeing cuts? Or do you think Powell, our friend, uh, will will keep it going and keep tightening things up? Honestly, I, I'm I'm uncertain, which is. Powell's credit, I think, to a certain extent, because with with most of the financial expert class out there, they would immediately be running for the hills. Though, worth pointing out, I believe the ECB followed through um, this week as well with uh, a, a projected tightening that they had. That might be just to try to avoid a crisis narrative that, oh, well, you know, they're, they're raising the, the panic sign on that. Um, but even though the, the problems that America has, and I think most of our audience will probably understand this, but the problems that we have within our banking system are not unique to the American banks. This is a global problem because the globe has followed for the most part, with very few exceptions, the same sort of policies that has brought us to this point by the way that we have subsidized risks. We have you know an insane banking system as it exists. Um, to Powell though, what I find interesting is that for such a very long period of time, you know, the official narrative, you know, was the Fed is beyond political influence. We can't dare audit the Fed because that would have Congress coming in here and eroding that independence. And it now it is perfectly okay for the Elizabeth Warrens of the world to be beating up on Jay Powell in a way that, you know, very serious financial press was, you know, clutching their pearls when Donald Trump was doing it for Jay Powell. Now, admittedly, Donald Trump was doing it for very bad reasons, right? Donald Trump was trying to get trying to bully Jay Powell into um, voiding, pivoting on raising rates back in 2018, which has been a proper move there, would have not solved the problem with the magic wand, but that helped Powell being bullied by Trump helped make this issue worse. Um, and so it's a dynamic where I, if, if Powell was willing to... St- Powell has been very consistent in his messaging that he is terrified at the consequences of the Fed losing credibility on the inflation issue. He's, he has been very articulate on this. Now, again, it's easy to go completely against everything you've said over the last year and a half. Happens all the time in D.C. Um, but if Powell is true to the perspective that he has articulated the way that he sees the world, then he might very well continue to push, you know, the 50 point, 50 basic point uh, uh, hikes that, again, the news before all this, you know, just just what, three days before was Powell being surprisingly hawkish in his projections for how the Fed was going to, you know, you know that he was, they were going to continue this fairly aggressive rate hike. If Powell backs off of that, it is showing that this caught him off guard, right? That, that that this was not priced in, that they're completely making it up. Some people would like that. A lot of the financial markets want to see a pivot here. There's gonna be banks pleading for a pivot here. I'm not entirely convinced that Powell is going to cave in there. My expectation is yes. A year ago, I would assumed yes. Powell has been a little bit more aggressive than I expected. And so that political dynamic, which, which also kind of, I think, creates this very interesting dynamic of a Powell versus Yellen dynamic there. Um, two people that, that that had been allies, had a working relationship. Powell was on the Fed when Yellen was the chair. Um, Yellen was big in convincing Biden to maintain Powell as that Fed chair position. But I think that there is going to be increased differences in the way that the the, the Yellen side of Washington, of, of FedGov economic policy views things and Powell sees 
things going forward. I think the Warrens on the side are going to be pro Yellen. I think there's, I think the Republicans are going to be lining up behind Powell. And so again, I, I think there's going to be an element of political of, of an explicitly political nature added into this narrative that we didn't quite see in 08, right, where it was the Uniparty, you know, there, there, there was everyone's marching in step. Um, central banks really haven't had to deal with this in the recent world. I think Powell could end up getting a lot more political pressure if, again, particularly if, if he stays, if he stays the course, he is going to become the political pinata that that every Democrat, the Biden administration, everyone's going to whack. And does is, is he willing to stand up to that? My assumption is no, but I, I I'm not here saying he's absolutely going to fold because I, he's he's earned a little bit of respect from me over the way that he's handled last year and a half. Well, Danielle DiMartino Booth's theory is that secretly, in his heart of hearts, Powell really, really wants to kill the Greenspan put. And so really wants to end this reliance of Wall Street on easy money for everything it does. Because you can see where we are now on that. All the discussion in the markets is, what's the next thing the Fed's going to do? There's no talk anymore of fundamentals, of uh, worker efficiency, of uh, what, what's, how are we doing as a firm in terms of controlling costs and all that stuff. Nobody talks about that stuff anymore. What, what matters to your company is how easy is it going to be to borrow more money to keep your zombie company afloat? Uh, three months from now. And uh, Powell, in uh, the Booth theory, uh, is uh, is trying to get rid of that. And so if that's really true, then, yeah, he's going to want to keep raising rates and he's going to have to then submit to tons of abuse from Washington because they're all going to say, and of course, these members of Congress don't have the slightest clue how central banks work or how the economy works, right? They, they have no idea. Maybe one in 90 members of Congress has like an understanding. And so they're just going to say what what they think is the the popular thing to say, which is the the Fed should stop stifling the economy. The Fed should do things to make the economy grow again. One of my favorites. It's wokeism that's the fault for these banking problems. <laughs> right? Come they'll on, blame guys. anything. The uh, and <laughs> well, that before we move on to that, who is who is to blame? Let's understand the problem in a little bit more detail. So why? What did the Fed not see coming? Uh, assuming they didn't see it coming, what did the world look like uh, a week ago to most everybody? And this was a, a world where the, the main focus was on what's employment right now, right? We keep raising rates and we're, we have to keep raising rates until employment goes down because what Powell kept pointing to was the fact that, yep, we keep raising interest rates, but it's still almost near maximum employment, if not over maximum employment in many cases. And so we can't back off uh, that until wage inflation stops. So he, Powell keeps having an excuse to keep raising rates because the labor market was so relatively strong. Now, was the Biden administration uh, basically blowing up numbers to make them look better than they were? Yes. Are these numbers rock solid? No. Are the survey results iffy? Yes. But how many people do you know that have been laid off? Right. I mean, yeah, if you work for a tech firm, you probably know some laid off people, but mass layoffs have not permeated the full economy. And we can see that where there's just not unemployed people everywhere. So those numbers have some connection in reality, these strong employment numbers. So that was the discussion is that it was still going to take more tightening to get the economy under control before you, quote unquote, broke something in the economy. But then something broke. And what it was that broke was that the banking sector uh, after a year of really, really fast 
uh, hikes in the interest rate suddenly had a interest rate maturity mismatch. And so this happened, if you're a little bit older, then you might remember the uh, savings and loan crisis from the late 80s and the early 90s. That's what happened there. That was where they had a bunch of mortgage debt, and that was long-term, long-maturity stuff, and they were getting paid on that. But then in the early 80s, the interest rates really started going up. And so then the banks had to pay out a bunch of money either to savings accounts because, boy, you could actually have a savings account with like five, six, seven percent interest. Uh, and they were even competing to get clients by increasing their savings account interest rates and that sort of thing. And so they're paying out lots of money. They're not bringing in much money because they had these old mortgages from lower interest rate period. And so now they're just losing money. And that's when you started to have all these banks or really thrifts, savings and loans go bottom up. And now the same thing's happening to the Fed where, oh, we got to pay out money, interest on reserves. So we got to pay out all this money. But all this stuff we hold in our portfolio, mortgage-backed securities, government debt, most of it with maturities longer than a year, we're stuck collecting these really, really low interest rates. And so our income's below what we're paying out. So in both of those cases, you've got that mismatch. You're paying out more of high interest rate stuff and bringing in a lot of low interest rate payments. And it doesn't work. It means you're losing money. And so that's where uh, Silicon Valley Bank was. Uh, and it's where these other regional banks are right now as well. They're, they had to start paying out as interest rates moved up. They had their newer obligations were very high in terms of interest payments. And what they owned on their portfolio was very low in terms of interest payments. So they weren't able to raise money. They weren't able to meet their obligations. It turned out that their assets that they had were not worth very much. And because nobody wanted to buy those low interest assets anymore. So the prices of that stuff was going down. Their portfolios looked like garbage relatively. And suddenly they're out of money. So people fear that the bank's going out of business. So they start withdrawing their money. And then that's just the death spiral for a bank. Right. But where this bailout comes from, and it's really more of a slow, not it's it's not technically a bailout is the federal government says, OK, well, we'll just give all the depositors their money. Um, and so you just stay at the bank, everybody. We'll give all your money. Uh, you don't have to get it out, even if you have a million dollars sitting there. Because if you're like me, you learned when you were nine years old and you opened your first savings account that your uh, deposit insurance only goes up to $250,000. It used to be 100000 before the, the last crisis. So when I was a kid, I opened my first account at Imperial Savings, a savings and loan bank in Southern California. It was insured by FSLIC back when there was a savings and loan insurance corporation. And uh, that disappeared, of course, <laughs> eventually. But even I knew as a child that there was a, a limit on how much was insured. That's why nine-year-old McMakin had to open up three different bank accounts with $100,000 each. To... <laughs> that's right. That's why, I had the, that's why I had multiple accounts because of my dog walking business in 1982. And so I even I knew this, uh, but apparently there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are like, mm, whatever, I'll just keep a million dollars or more just sitting there in the bank. And so then if the bank goes belly up, I lose. If it is a million dollars, I lose seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It just disappears because the bank takes it. 
Now, the way you would shut down a bank in the past is you would you would uh, liquidate all of the bank's assets and then pay off as many depositors as you could that were above that $250,000 limit. But instead of doing that, they're like, nah, whatever, we'll just uh, just give money to everybody, even if they were too lazy or too dumb or too ignorant or too arrogant to actually do the many strategies you can employ to protect all of your money. That is by keeping it at multiple banks, using um, several, uh, keeping it under different names, you and your spouse, all that. There's all sorts of stuff you can do, right? And, or cash flow, you sweep the, the money daily into somewhere else. Uh, banks offer this, you hire money managers to do it, which if you have a lot of uh, liquidity demands uh, on your money, then you do it. You gotta capture, you gotta take care of payroll, stuff like that. But they, they couldn't be bothered, apparently. Uh, only 6% of the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank were fully insured. Um, so most of these, like, you know, the elite, the Silicon Valley elite, they were just keeping their money there uninsured. So they all wanted to take out their money. But lo and behold, when you're rich, when you're powerful, when you're Silicon Valley, you just go to the federal government and say, hey, give us all our money back. And so they're just going to do that. But that's all backed up. It, yeah, it's backed up by FDIC. But FD, who backs up FDIC? Uh, the Treasury, the Congress. So if if uh, there are any future problems, if there is a future crisis, it's just tax dollars that's going to end up paying off this bank and any other banks that now have this implicit guarantee that everything is insured and covered. So that's where we are now. It's just like this classic bank corruption, the sort of thing that... Leggett and Jefferson would have complained about in the 19th century. Hey, when you're the when you're the money counting class, uh, the paper money class, you, you never have to worry about really losing your money because Washington will come in and bail out all the rich people. And this is essentially what it is. It's a it's a billionaire bailout. But I think you could maybe claim that yeah, sure, maybe the Fed didn't anticipate it was going to happen quite this way or quite this quickly. And so, but they had ready to go. They didn't pass any new laws or something. They had enough power just sitting there, I guess, to just have a meeting on Sunday and decide, well, we're just going to bail everybody out. And that's what happened. There was no vote. There's no law change. That's who's in charge. There's this just money people who print up more money or can off move money around anywhere they want. And it doesn't require any, any buy-in from uh, the American people or the taxpayers whatsoever. And so that's what the situation is now. And the question is, will this just encourage other people to be even more irresponsible in their deposits? Will uh, you have even more zombie banks now because people are paying even less attention now to what banks are doing? Uh, it's really just another slow motion, um, quantitative easing-like situation, uh, which further fa favors the wealthy, the expense of the average taxpayer who was following the rules, who wasn't going to have a problem from the SVB stuff. And so here we are now. And then the big question is, oh, well, we got to make sure no more banks fail. And the way to do that then is to cut interest rates and just make sure that financial conditions are loose enough that the banks, uh, they don't run into trouble, that they can borrow more money, um, that there's just more sloshing around in the system that uh, the banks aren't going to go belly up and then problem solved. The problem, of course, is that if they do back off all of that, you're just going to keep inflation high. It's still high. It's at 6%. The most recent inflation number was 6%. And that also meant that real wages were negative because wage growth, nominal wage growth came in at under 5%, 4.8%-ish. And so that's where we are. We're all just talking about how much inflation is tolerable to bail out bankers. 
And so who suffers from inflation? Regular people. Who benefits from more easy money? The bankers. They'll try and frame it as regular people will benefit greatly from this as well, because that's the same scheme they used in 2008 was, well, everyone will lose their job and uh, we, we need to bail out the banks because uh, the, all of America, Main Street depends on the health of these banks. But I think as um, David Stockman pointed out in his book, The Great Deformation, it was really never extended to Main Street. This was a matter for the financial sector that was, by and large, way more heavily affected than Main Street was on this stuff. So we're having this, this discussion again. So I guess the suspense is who gets bailed out? Do we finally get some relief for the uh, the holders of dollars, regular people who are paying high inflation, or do we bail out the banks? And uh, as you said, it's actually, uh, it's unclear. We don't actually know. We can't just assume Powell's going to do that. But one thing we do know is that every bank is not too big to fail. And it's because it's, it's a psychological aspect to it where, again, there, there is, there's reasons why Silicon Valley is, is I think, the location for the, the first big domino to fall here, Signature Bank, obviously, New York, that's a separate situation. We'll talk about that in a second. But one, but, but, the, but big tech or the, the tech industry is one of those industries that is, I think, feeling the pain the most right now in the face of these interest rates as, as an industry that does business with this bank. And that's because they, it's one of the industries that have benefited the most from the easy money era you have an incredible number of businesses there that are not profitable, never been profitable. Household names like Etsy and Uber and you know bigwigs. I'm not sure if they were using Silicon Valley Bank, but you know, dynamic within that industry. And so you have a lot of exposure to that bank and to that industry. So this is the first one popping. The issue is though is that uh, I was talking with a buddy of mine who um, recently was let go from a regional size bank. And he was he was talking about the the way that their commercial real estate loans portfolio is bottling out. There are uh, the degree to which this mismatch in the, the the interest rates of their assets is not unique to Silicon Valley, and that's why that's that's why while I have no doubt that Silicon Valley's staff had more clowns and freak show folks. Than the majority of banks out there, certainly more than, let's say, an average regional bank in Alabama, the, the, the wokeism aspect and their commitment to you know, DEI and pride parades and Black Lives Matter movements is not the fundamental cause here at all. It is the consequence of their exposure to a particularly inflated industry matched with the systemic ways that the financial system as a whole promoted – it undermined nationally the banking system. This is something that Daniel Lacaille has done a great job of warning about from a European perspective. This is something that we've had several Mises.org writers. Uh, uh, Philip Bagus has been warning. A lot of a lot of the, our scholars have done most work on this are is, is in, are in Europe. It's interesting that Europe has not yet had this issue. The only reason why they have not is that Powell started about a year earlier. On raising interest rates, so again, we are we are not America's not alone in this. Um, Credit Suisse, I know, is the big concern right now. I, I, I know Switzerland just pumped a, a bunch of liquidity into that. This is a global problem. But again, this all, the, the global response to 08 fundamentally undermined all of these institutions. Now, and and you you could make an argument. I've, I've seen some of uh, uh, Jeffrey Sachs out there has pushed back against the oh well let the banks fail narrative. 
trying to argue that, well, you know, if 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 you allowed these depositors that, you know, did nothing wrong. I, my understanding, Bob Murphy mentioned this on a, a recent Twitter space, is that there were incentive programs that Silicon Valley Bank had to maintain very large cash holdings, right, to do with, with, with different products they had to offer, yada, yada, yada. Fine, whatever. Um, fundamentally, though, we've created a system of, of, a, of a fundamentally unstable bank. And one of the great crimes within this is that simultaneously, while the federal reserve, why federal policy, not limited to the Fed, has been incentivizing and pumping in instability within the traditional banking sector. They have been preventing more stable alternatives like what our friend Caitlin Long has been trying to do with our Custodia Bank, which would be a full reserve banking system. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more on the bit crypto issue here in a moment. But there's something very sinister, I think, within this. And that I, I, whether or not it is by design or by outcome, what this looks like to me is once again, we're going to see a massive consolidation within the banking sphere. Already right now, we have more or less two tiers of banks. Um, we've got the two big to fail, uh, significantly systemically important financial institutions, SIFIs, um, that have additional requirements, stress tests, things like this. So Democrats are pointing out and say, ah, oh, see, if only we treated all the banks the same way we treat the too big to fail banks. And oh, well, you know, Donald Trump rolled back um, the size for, I think, $100 billion to $50 billion size banks. And this is what contributed to, you know, this is why Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a stress test that would have solved this. And it's funny because Barney Frank, author of the, of, of the Dodd-Frank Act, um, was one of the people lobbying for this on Signature Bank. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, the, the reason, though, they, they have these limits is because the amount of the cost to the bank to jump through all the hoops necessary uh, that, that, the, that the SIFI banks have, it makes them – I mean it's, it's, it, 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 fun, it undermines their ability to function. And so if you get a dynamic to where we're saying, OK, well, every bank is going to have to be treated like J.P. Morgan, then we're going to see – as we've already seen, the, 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 if, if you see a, a map of you know community and regional banks, I mean, you see a, a gradual shrinking down. It looks like a you know corporate map um, on the way all, all the corporate consolidation is. We're, we're, we're pushing towards a gradual consolidation of the banking sphere, and they're going. We, we know we're, they're going to use the crisis for it, and effectively, what this bailout is is a nationalization of the banking system, and while they ban alternatives to it. And this is what raises the specter of central bank digital currency, which is a, a very terrifying and, and popular topic on, on in our circles and elsewhere. Um, but that that's that the, the fallout from this is going to be we need even more control in the entire system. And when we consider the degree to which uh, the financial services industry has already been weaponized, when we consider the degree that we've already seen the regime being able to willing to operate in a variety of ways to cut down, shut down on dissidents. I and mean, there's a fun, there's, a, there's an interesting censorship aspect to this because one of the people, one of the narratives out there, right, is that the quick fall of Silicon Valley Bank was spurred on because of social media. And so you had, oh, well, friends of Peter Thiel where Peter Thiel is waiting, you know, waving warning flags out there. That got people tweeting about it. That pushed the psychological consequence of a banking crisis. And so therefore, that is what sped up 
its collapse. And so therefore we must, uh, Thomas Massey said that there was a Democratic senator in one of the closed door meetings on this topic. We must censor social media content that might spook a future bank run. And so there's, there's this, the, the, we can never doubt the regime's ability to allow a crisis to go to waste. Um, and again, this is what makes Powell's aspect in here so interesting because he is going to very quickly, I think, demonstrate himself either to, to be, again, the expectation should be that he is going to become a company man and, and be Yellen's right-hand partner in this entire operation. That is what I assume. Um, or he is going to end up being a tension point amongst a much broader ambitious agenda. Um, and how that ends up you know, cranking out here is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah, so uh, Powell caving and doing what Yellen tells him to do, I guess, is the null hypothesis. <laughs> the question is, will anything be different? Um, so let's quickly go back through all of our possible things that are going to be blamed for this, right? Okay, it's, uh, uh, it's capitalism just in general. It's late-stage capitalism, just vaguely defined, whatever that means. It's greed. Uh, it's uh, poor management just on the part of the banks. And I think that's partially true, but that's certainly an insufficient condition. The other thing is, oh, let's blame wokeness. Uh, one issue, right, Signature Bank, there's all these videos going around on social media, these ridiculous, like, expensively produced videos that the the management at Signature Bank was putting together to uh, showcase their diversity and what wonderful people they are and everything. And it, and it had the same cringe factor as those, like, nurse dance videos from during COVID. I mean, just ridiculous, embarrassing. And that's what bankers spend their time doing now, at least at some banks, right? But I don't see how you can really blame that. Uh, and and then the other issue and something else we could blame is, I guess, Twitter for making giving people too much information about banks. It would be one thing to blame Twitter for collapsing the bank if the bank was financially sound, but it wasn't. So all that meant is that Twitter told people the truth about Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, so I don't see the problem there. So there's all, am I missing any? Peter Thiel himself has been specifically blamed as, as some sort of, <laughs> you know, alt-right plot okay. as well. Oh, just Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, okay. yeah. Which, of course, uh, we blame Donald Trump because he supposedly, quote-unquote, deregulated the banks. I saw Robert Reich out there saying, oh, the banks were deregulated. I don't know what universe you have to live in to think that the financial sector in any way is deregulated, but whatever. There was some minor scaling back. Uh, now, let's look at some possible things to act that are really the cause, right? I think you covered those already, right? You created the sort of easy money atmosphere where... Banks can just continue to skate by by hiring complete fools for their management, like Signature Bank was clearly doing, uh, and continue to keep the charade going for years and years, right? There's a there's a big rot there. But as long as interest rates stayed low, you can be a zombie bank and just borrow more money as it comes in at lower and lower interest rates. So what it created was a situation where fundamentals don't matter at the bank. So that just created an environment for incompetence uh, to uh, flourish. Again, easy money right there. And as Lacaye points out, they, uh, in an article for Mises.org, these banks were just doing what essentially the system was encouraging right. them to do, which was load up on certain types of debt and then just trust the system to be fine and interest rates to stay low forever. Like these people really believed they were somehow living in a world where interest rates would not go up significantly ever again. And I think there was an implied guarantee from the central bank on that. 
And I mean, you just get back to the fundamentals here. Mises, Rothbard, just general Austrian econ sort of stuff where, look, if you have massive credit expansion, it just creates a situation where people have no idea what the real prices of things are, what the real state of the economy is. And you're just propping up this hollowing out shell of an economy that's riding completely on uh, fake money as productivity falls, as investment and savings decline and go away. And then one day it all blows up in your face. And so that seems to be the stage now that we're getting at. And the idea that more regulation would somehow uh, solve this problem, there's boatloads of regulation. So uh, (laughs) which regulation could you have passed that would have somehow solved this problem of a uh, maturity mismatch? Nothing. It was clearly a monetary policy caused issue. And so as long as we we're going around wasting our time with blaming wokeness or capitalism or whatever, yet again, the the whole central bank easy money system is going to get off the hook uh, for the dozenth time. Because somehow we just blame partisan politics or something rather than the real root of the, the problem, which is this bad money. And the other side of it, though, is that the government is very deliberately trying to choke off any alternatives to it. Um, something that 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 has been a, a growing issue within the crypto sphere. And obviously crypto has a big black eye because of FTX and, and other scam coins and things like that, right? And this, in, in we, we have listeners, I'm sure, that's saying, well, you know, it's, it's important to distinguish between crypto and Bitcoin. Valid point on that. Um, but there has been a gradual uh, attack on the financial service providers to the crypto industry as a whole. Um, this is reminiscent of a deliberate strategy the Obama administration used back in uh, 2010, 2011. Um, something at the time was called Operation Choke Point. Um, which has a very ironic twist because the target at the time was online gambling, online poker pl- uh, things, things like that. You had you had online poker players that had all of their money uh, uh, frozen by the feds because you know, online gambling was illegal at the time. And you know the fact that 12 years later it's sponsored by the NFL is a whole other aspect of this story. Um, but as a result of that, you had one of the um, industries that massively pushed and normalized crypto use became the gambling industry um, because that was their work around the banks. I, I, my own, I, I, I used the first time I ever bought Bitcoin was to gamble uh, on, on sports, to be perfectly honest. Um, now they're using the same exact tena- uh, technique. And so they, and they did it by focusing on the banking industry, threatening them with violating federal law, et cetera, et cetera, that. And so banks said, well, we're just not going to process this. And so we're done. They're doing the same exact thing now with the crypto industry space. And so Signature Bank, which was uh, taken over by the feds over the weekend. Um, the executive director is, again, at the, the aforementioned Barney Frank. Um, Barney Frank has said, so, so, so this has been something that was whispered about, rumored about, talked about on Twitter, um, which why we need to censor it, um, about how this has the appearance of not a um, necessarily underlying stability issue of Signature Bank, but rather a, another way of breaking a window in the crypto industry because Signature Bank, after um, other bank closures, um, larger banks are, are distancing themselves because they've been told to, right? Signature Bank had become one of the biggest de facto banks or one of the biggest uh, banks for the crypto industry. Uh, Coinbase has a lot of their, their stuff parked there. Another interesting aspect, 
is that the uh, uh, signature was, was taken over. Both, both Silicon Valley and um, Signature were both le- the state regulators, not federal regulators, that played a role with it. But there is coordination, particularly with the New York, with this. So I do want to clarify with that. Um, the argument is that they 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 captured Signature because of their dealings with the crypto industry, not losses from the crypto industry, but simply their willingness to be that asset, that 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 resource there. Um, and Barney Frank has effectively, has effectively said this too. Now, is he trying to promote cover for you know the inadequacies of the bank that he was running? Valid, valid. I have not. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I have not gone through and looked at the underlying balance sheet of Signature Bank and cannot speak on its own soundness. Fine, um, but this, but hit, but Barney Frank's own statements, um, and I, I, I might, I've been told, or I've seen reports that any buyer of Signature Bank's uh, balance sheet has been told that they have to jettison off the crypto porf- aspect of it. Again, this is something that was leading up to this, and this goes back to the Caitlin Long point um, because again, Caitlin Long, one of the, one of the arguments that has been used to by the Biden administration to prevent uh, Caitlin Long from getting a bank charter and to be able to, to operate. Uh, I believe it's the Fed in the Biden administration different different things there um, is that oh well, Custodia Bank with its exposure to Bitcoin could create systemic risk by its failing. And and again, Caitlin Long's bank is a full reserve bank and has everything covered uh, uh, beyond the deposit of money in there. Like it, it is, is the fact that they are using systemic instability as a justification for, provi- for, for preventing a stable banking option out there is, I mean – Delightfully clown world Orwellian speak, um, but but the feds are aware right now. I think they're hyper aware of the dangers of alternatives to the traditional financial services market that they have so deeply captured. And therefore, they want to deprive as many lifeboats off as possible in uh, Bitcoin, crypto as a whole other banking alternatives, all are things that must be stopped, destroyed. And I am curious to see, I find it inevitable that they're going to try to do something on the gold side of things as well when gold starts becoming a more obvious move by, internationally, we're already seeing a flight to gold in various markets. America, I, 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 I don't think that, that it's quite there within the, – that, that's become the strategic move. But I have no doubt at all that you're going to see a, a, a tightening down on escape boats off this ship that has been so deformed by a decade plus of insane monetary policy and, reg, and regulatory bodies. This is a deliberate part of what they're doing right now. And again, so this this is what makes this story. It's it's more. It is it, it is a banking instability problem. It is a it is a a you know, tech issue with Silicon Valley Bank. But I think the Signature Bank in particular ties in this much larger crackdown on alternatives to um, the regime's monetary system. Yeah, there's really uh, shockingly little capitalism left in the system, um, and it's not just that the regulation is a problem, but that the regulation, as you hinted at. A little bit earlier has actively intervened to really cut down on the number of independent and small community and regional banks that are actually out there anymore because the system, whether it's through implicit guarantees, is through regulation, is through stress tests, all of that stuff. Dodd-Frank went a long way in destroying uh, community banks and making them go away so that you saw more and more 
what deposits did exist fly to the larger and larger banks. So you've got that. You've got that uh, anti-competitive measure right there. And you've got the fact that apparently federal regulators, they don't even want any full reserve banks. And that's, of course, the other big aspect of the causes of this crisis is it's not just the fact that it's so much easy money, but it's the fact that that system, the easy money system, the central bank system works hand in hand to uh, ensure the uh, perpetuity of the fractional reserve banking system. It's It offers this backstop. We only have uh, reserve requirements at rock bottom levels. And we just, uh, we're the lender of last resort. So just be completely irresponsible with whatever deposits you do have. Uh, and since we're pushing down interest rates everywhere, we've got this desperate search for yield where you're taking on higher and higher risk in order to get back some sort of return. And that just makes these banks uh, just uh, tottering on the edge of destruction a lot of the time. Meanwhile, you don't have other smaller banks that can compete and you're not allowing any of these uh, proposed full reserve banks like Custodia to even exist. So it's shrinking the realm of legal banking possibilities while at the same time doing nothing to actually take care of the underlying uh, risk that exists in the economy due to our monetary system. So that's where we are now. You want to solve the problem? You got to at least let people who want to do full reserve banks. Uh, you've got to, at the very least, massively increase the reserve requirements at these fractional reserve banks, as those are just out of control. And you, uh, you, you got to quit with these ultra low interest rate uh, schemes, financial repression, it's called, because that's what sows the seeds and creates the situations that we now have, where you can easily have even a small increase in interest rates then causes banks uh, to go underwater. So all that doesn't look like in the short term, any of those things are going to happen. And so we may just be heading into it to the next financial crisis, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. We'll know next week uh, after the FOMC meeting how things actually turn out, and uh, we'll have more to talk about, I think, later this spring, depending on what goes on there. But for now, we'll go ahead and end this episode of Radio Rothbard. I appreciate Tho being with me today, and we will see you next time.